Hello and welcome to Talking HE, my name is Santanu Vasant. In this episode we speak to Dr. Jana Yavnik, former Director General of Higher Education in the Ministry of Education in Slovenia and Associate Professor of Work and Employment Relations at the University of Leeds Business School. We discuss Jana's time as Director General of Higher Education in Slovenia, what she sees as the differences and similarities between the UK and Slovenian higher education systems, and her perceptions of what we've learned from COVID-19, both here in the UK and in Slovenia. We hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm Jana Javornik. Uh, I'm a former Director General of Higher Education, uh, currently an academic at Leeds University up in Yorkshire. Can you tell us about your experience of being Director General of Higher Education in the Slovenian government and what you were able to take back to the University of Leeds? So first, as being a global academic, and obviously the UK is not my only ac- um, academic environment I've been to, um, I actually often forget the role the national and international and even supranational politics and policy, including macroeconomic trends, um, play in the everyday life of the university as an institution. And it really, like when I moved into this role, uh, which is the highest uh, civic uh, service role um, in, it really challenged actually my naive belief that the majority of higher education institutions are some kind, some kind of bastions of progressive thought, policy and action. And my sense is that more centrist, idea, centrist ideologies uh, carry the day on campus. And um, I do believe, and now I actually see it, right, that politics has always been embedded in higher education. And among other, that's because critical thinking, ethics, science, research, free speech, social justice are all key components uh, for universities across the globe. Uh, but the byproducts of these practices, which often originate from higher education, really do help to inform the national discourse. And in doing so, they inevitably cross into the polit- political conversation. And while higher education has never been neutral, in my view, um, it's really getting dragged or driving headlong into divisive politics more than ever before. And we've seen that in Slovenia over the past two years and are increasingly seeing that um, across across the world. So that's definitely one of the biggest lessons uh, for me personally, not necessarily for me as an academic. Um, but it also shows how under-researched the question of politics in higher education actually is. And actually, I, I, I read an essay written in 1968, so 50-odd years ago, uh, which Samuel Gove and Barbara, Barbara Solomon um, wrote, and they concluded um, that although public elementary and secondary education is seen historically as inseparable from local and state politics, Really, the same cannot be said for the relationship of higher education and politics. And I think that now, kind of 50 years later, the same assessment can still be made. And as a subject of social scientific inquiry, I think politics of higher education research remains in a state of 
perpetual infancy, uh, prone to periodic lurches, but lacking in sustained and systematic conceptualization and analysis. And I think now, post-COVID, I think that's really something that that um, we need to be and, and study more. And I think this has to do, I think, with the pandemic, which um, has revealed a great deal about the state of higher education, both in Europe and beyond Europe. What do you see are the challenges in higher education at the moment in Europe? And what, if anything, can governments and or university leaders do to address them? I think this really has to do with the with the pandemic and the magic 2020 year 2020, which, as I've said, um, revealed a huge deal about the state of higher education in Europe. And I think that institutions that have long touted themselves as being student first um, have shown that even during a pandemic, tuition, finances, cash inflow uh, really matter far more than the well-being of the community. Um, and the I think the pandemic has really revealed the challenges that the sector has faced for decades now, I think, both in terms of, of working relations, um, both in terms of quality of, of uh, higher education provision, uh, in terms of innovation, in terms of pedagogy, in terms of how well staff, academic staff are trained, uh, where students actually or student provision actually sits in terms or compared to research, the questions of prestige, hierarchy, elite. So that really opened up the Pandora box in terms of the flexibility, availability, accessibility, quality of higher education uh, provision. And I, I, I really think that one of the biggest issues now is the money. Um, there were, I think the, the crisis really hit across the globe. It hit the sector disproportionately. And... Um, it hit those that are financed through tuition and it hit those that are fi financed through uh, budgetary cash flows. So, um, and I think that those pleas for financial help were just not heard by politics when there was time. And I would say that broadly, uh, the sector did incur significant losses, both in terms of funding, both in terms of staff. And I think that the realities of today's higher education are that most higher education institutions just cannot afford to be on bad terms with either the central government or their wealthy boosters. And that brings me back to my to my first answer about the role of the politics and having having worked so closely with um two different governments during my relatively short term, one being liberal, one being conservative, are really I've seen how important that role of politics is in how universities behave. Obviously, as being, you know, being social systems, um, they do respond. They, they don't only create what's happening in a society, they respond to what's happening in a society. And they are a universe um, on its own. Uh, and they too are conservative. And when it comes to um, the universities responding or higher education institutions broader, so speaking broadly, responding to what's happening in terms of macroeconomy uh, or the economic trends and all of that. They really are pushing the, the plug and, and, and um, we are seeing a huge break in terms of risk taking, in terms of opening up, uh, in terms of innovating. Um, I think they're becoming quite conservative as, as institutions, quite rigid as institutions, uh, rather than 
now using that unique opportunity, historic juncture point, as we call it in social policy, um, to innovate, um, to move the sector forward. So I think what what's happening right now is that I think the big players that have been, been big are becoming bigger because they started and entered the pandemic with tremendous resources, both in terms of human resources, both in terms of financial resources. And the smaller players, are they, they, they are just losing out. And um, I think this two-tier system that, that we've seen in the past is just becoming ever more bluntly obvious. And in terms of international, um, in terms of what's happening at the international level, uh, obviously I've, I've worked very closely with the European Union and the OECD. I, I see a trend towards the instrumentalization of higher education, if that's a word, but it's certainly happening. Um, kind of the utility function of the university producing ever more graduates that are uh, ready to just jump into, uh, into a job and are job ready. Uh, and I think that's really, really losing and or kind of like just not taking the, the the all the benefits that the university education has, because university graduates actually have added value, and that's critical thinking, that's team working, all those soft skills um, that we know know about are now being reduced to the whatever the needs of the market are. But then again, you know, none of us is in in a business of 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 uh, projecting what the future needs of the labour market will be, and how we generally do that, you know, at the EU level is we take the past ten years, so the demands over the past ten years, we take the demands today, and we and we apply those to the next ten years, and it's been the financial crisis, the global financial crisis that hit really turned things upside down. And then came the pandemic that really turned things upside down. And as society, I think we still haven't learned about those huge um, learning lessons that the history brings. So I think it's really time perhaps to, to, to go back and have some more fundamental discussions and conversation about the societal role of um, higher education institutions. And here, when I, when I talk about the mission, I usually talk about universities, not, not higher education institutions in a broader sense, uh, because universities are still those uh, old academic uh, Humboldt, uh, Humboldt kind of type of, of, of place where, where there's role for scholarship, where there's role for scholars, and where there is role for curiosity. So I think we really came slightly too far in terms of the instrumentalization of higher education rather than 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 discovering all those added values that, that higher education has. And I really think across European Union and the OECD that higher education institutions are increasingly being seen as just an extended um, arm of colleges or uh, professional vocational education and I th I'm seeing this trend that instead of preparing our graduates for spending four odd decades in the labour market meaning they have to be flexible they have to be able to think on their feet they have to be able to apply this critical thinking and the synthesis for example is just lacking I think um that's just being lost. And I think the European Union and the OECD both have a critical role in that. And they should find a way um, to turn their trend in the opposite direction. What kind of similarities and differences are there between the UK and Slovenian higher education systems? 
so there are a few points of departure I'd like to, or a few points of um, where, where, where I see the two really differ significantly, and I'll start with those. And I really would say that um, the key difference stems from the fact that the two countries represent um, two different welfare state regimes. Uh, with the UK representing the what we call a neoliberal welfare state and Slovenia being a mixture of a post-socialist, Nordic and corporate regime. And corporate is usually represented, Germany represents the corporate regime. So Slovenia is really a mixture of those three. And um, for for those uh, listening to us not knowing where Slovenia is, Slovenia used to be part of Yugoslavia, so is you know, is now, a, is called, still 30 years later, still called, called a post-socialist country, meaning that really the public in this in this country is important um, and the, the role of the state in, in, in this group of countries uh, is big um, compared to the UK. And I think that in the higher education, this reflects in the specific role of the state, as I've mentioned, with the Slovene higher education being predominantly state-funded, uh, being predominantly public, uh, with the right to education being written in the constitution, um, which also determines uh, that state universities ought to be autonomous. Um, so there's a term that we use is a state university, meaning that it's established by the state and it's state-owned um, and it's funded through, through budget. Uh, so there are no tuition fees in public institutions um, that produce actually most graduates vis-a-vis -vis the UK marketized higher education system. And here I think the similarity between the two countries is the high level of trust enjoyed by public higher education institutions in both countries uh, compared to private competitors. In Slovenia, the private higher education institutions actually have quite a notorious reputation so they don't attract uh, mass uh, masses of students and and there's some you know because there's a market failure in higher education there's some um, concessions being made um, in Slovenia similarly to the UK but I think uh, in the UK there's a really strict separation between the, the the private and the public in terms of how they operate whereas in Slovenia there's a blur and there's something that we'd call a mixed economy of higher education which doesn't necessarily work um, properly but that's for another podcast. Um, another point that I'd like to bring up is a huge difference in internationalization. Uh, with the UK being I'd, I'd say among the global leaders with international student recruitment I think crucial for income generation. Um, Slovenia is actually on the other end of that spectrum. Um, internationalization as a strategic agenda is relatively new uh, and has in a short span experienced numerous challenges that in my view are crucial for the future of internationalization, largely related to the nationalist populist developments, uh, which I'm sure you and the audience know are quite big in Central and Eastern Europe um, right now. Oh, and I would say that the tension between universal nature and the embeddedness in the national and local contexts uh, is a dominant feature uh, with Slovene universities, while being global in the content, far more than, than, than the British academia, I'd say. Um, they have clear national orientation in the classroom makeup. Um, and that brings me to the third point, which is the language. So Slovenia is a tiny country, northern, um, no, southern northern of Italy and southern uh, to Austria, uh, with only two million people. 
Um, so it's only two million people in the entire world that speak the language. And that, you know, that's a proportion of the population of London. Uh, and as a non-English speaking country, um, it's quite similar to other countries outside the what we call the big four English speaking study destinations, which are the UK, the US, Australia, Canada. Um, the landscape of English taught programs um, in this in Slovenia hasn't changed largely explicitly due to the nationalist populist developments. Um, but that means that tiny Slovenia, uh, regardless of its high quality undergraduate provision and quality of life, really does struggle to become a destination country for international student recruitment. Um, and considering the rise of populism and conservatism, xenophobia, racism, sexism, you name it, um, I'm not sure Slovenia will soon see a significantly increased flow of undergraduate students from across the world, you know, with the big four being a huge competition, obviously. Um, and regardless of how I think about that personally, the facts are here. And those facts clearly demonstrate the ongoing importance of English as a medium of instruction. Uh, which should prompt us all to consider the changes happening to the international education landscape and the impact the mobility has, which you and I, you know, well, too well. So I would say that this is most obvious, and I'll bring that up and then I'll shut down and shut up, is the fastest growing disciplines such as medicine and health, uh, which includes fields such as health sciences, human medicine, public health, uh, in the EU, actually, the pharmaceutical and medical sectors are among the most highly regulated in the world, second only to the nuclear and aerospace industries. And here, I think the knowledge of local language plays an important role. And again, with only two million Slovenes or two million people speaking Slovene, the market is just too small to be attracting the global talent. So we really need to be as you know, as policymakers, as politicians, much, much smarter and, and strategic in how to attract uh, talent rather than merely exporting it. And we are exporting our talent uh, big time, particularly after 2010. And I'd say here is that um, overall, uh, universities may consider themselves essentially international institutions, the Slovenian ones, uh, but they do act within national regulatory frameworks, which I find stubbornly rigid. And Slovenia certainly needs to modernize its regulatory framework, which is something that really motivates me to return to this role, because we haven't managed to do that in such a short time span. And it needs to become more externally oriented and significantly less hierarchical. So slightly more similar to the UK ac academia, which is not hierarchical at all. And it needs to become more open and hierarchical in terms of staff, um, in terms of work, re work relations, not in terms of institutions. There's a clear hierarchy there. Um, and I, but one thing that I do admire is the fact that students in Slovenia graduate debt-free. Um, and there's lots of subsidized student accommodation housing, subsidized meals, subsidized public transport. Um, but unfortunately, all this comes with high price and it corresponds with higher rigidity, normativity, uh, related lack of flexibility, uh, which we can find in the UK. So I would say that this is not without challenges, having a you know state-funded higher education. Um, and it does show in significantly 
high, higher length or longer. Long, it takes longer to, for, for the Slovene graduates um, to finish higher education, um, but it does speak volume in terms of affordability and um, accessibility. What do you think we've learned from the emergency remote teaching that took place during the pandemic, both in the UK and in Slovenia? I think just one thing that obviously uh, I really was hoping that during the pandemic, when we see this emergency transition to online learning and all of that, that we would come out on, at the other end, much smarter and wiser. But I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing that in the UK and I'm not seeing that in Slovenia. Um, I think as, as human beings, we just prefer our comfort zones and we just use this unique historic opportunity instead of you know innovating throwing money in higher education um instead I, i'm seeing just you know too there's too much of the same old same old same old and why do you think that is i think one i think there would be one rationale uh, or one explanation for that and and i think that's a human psychology we want to go back to what we thought was normal and instead of redefining what normal means, being on campus, uh, being in a classroom, being taught at, being talked at, um, which we thought was normal before pandemic. So instead of reinventing what new normal is, and that's for me hybrid and the luxury it brings and, and, and the accessibility it brings to people who cannot afford being mobile or cannot be mobile to such extent for various different reasons. Uh, so instead of using that and, and, and really capitalizing on, on us as human race being forced into innovating. Um, we just, because we were forced into innovating, I think we now are um, really revolting and saying, no, we are now being anarchic in a way of, we just want to go back to whatever the normal was before the pandemic. But I do hope that on the margins, um, the change is happening and that soon this change will accumulate into what I would like to say, say would be a reform in a policy and a political sense of the word. Thank you to Jana for her time. Coming up next time on Talking HE, we speak to Peter Reed, Managing Director of Interactive Pro, an online program management company. A preview coming up. Peter Reed. Uh, Managing Director at Interactive Pro, which is an an OPM, an online program management company. I, I would I would be inclined to say yes, that kind of speed and agility. Um, but sometimes it's hard to apply that to you know a 150 year old academic institution, and the mindset of of that is absolutely completely 100 different. Um, and and then we're getting into, you know, you can get into a lot of philosophical discussions about the role of universities. Um, and obviously, over the years, we've seen lots of conversations and frustrations from within the sector about universities closing down programmes, for example, um, because they're not recruiting as many students or they don't see this as a, as a strategic business opportunity. Kind of compared to the academic, you know, angle of discussion that this is carrying on knowledge that's been in, you know, in academic conversations for, for many, many years. And you can't just close them off because in a way you're killing, you're going, you're going to end the cycle of of progression of knowledge and, and diffusion of that knowledge. So um, I would say yes, but with some caveats there, I think you need to be very careful. I think one of the big things in, in the OPM space is that I think a lot of the criticism has been about the pure commercialization view of that. 
And I wouldn't deny that that, that it's there because, of course, it is. But I don't think it's quite as obvious as a lot of people in the public sector think it is. Um, you know, the, the drive that they're only interested in profits and, and not quality, which is, in my experience, absolutely not true. All that and more in the next episode of Talking HE. Thanks for listening. If you've got a comment or a question, please tweet us at TalkingHEPod or email santanu at santanuvasant.com. Until then, I've been Santanu Vasant and this has been Talking HE.